You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you and a buddy work together to solve a problem, you'll probably conclude that two heads indeed are better than one. I mean, who could come up on their own with the brilliance of using an iron to grill a cheese sandwich? Because after all, it does save on dishes. But are three or more heads even better? Well, the wisdom of crowds has adaptive value, but relying on the knowledge you think others possess can also lead to problems. And that's how I learned the hard way that umbrellas make very poor parachutes. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. In this episode, when do you go along with the crowd and when do you go it alone? Well, that question would be easier to answer if one of our guests didn't claim that the very idea of individual thought is a myth. Sorry, all you iconoclasts. Our success as a species derives in part from the fact that we draw on the knowledge of the community. But what if others don't know what they're talking about? Find out how following groupthink can lead to irrational behavior. Also, why we have a biological drive to instantly label others and put them into groups, and how we might break out of our us-versus-them thinking. It's Skeptic Check, Rational Lampoon. If you want something done right, you frequently have to do it yourself. Take loading the dishwasher, something I attempt on a regular basis. I mean, there is a logic to arranging these dishes. Small plates go over here and the big plates over there, and then the bowls, and no serving bowls on the top rack. No, not on the top rack. And how are you trying to put the wooden cutting board in there? Never mind, I'll just do it myself. But sometimes it helps to take our cue from others, in particular when it comes to learning novel behavior or thinking. A new study shows that the adaptive benefit of learning from others extends to our primate cousins. Now, researchers have observed numerous parallels between human culture and chimpanzee culture, and that's not terribly surprising because we're all primates. But some behaviors remain uniquely human. A driver who pulls in front of you without using a turn signal or being the recipient of an unwanted surprise birthday party or putting ham and pineapple on a cheesy crust and having the gall to call it pizza. These experiences are uniquely human, but they are specific. However, if we speak about generalized behavior, we find that there is an impressive similarity among primates. The latest is a behavior once considered unique to humans, that of passing down previous knowledge and building on it a concept of cumulative culture. A study at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland suggests that apes share this technique of building knowledge. It's more than monkey see, monkey do, although here it would be ape see, ape do, but seeing 
doing by imitation, and passing that information to others down through the generations. Researcher Lawrence Doyle from the SETI Institute was not part of the University of St. Andrews study, but he summarizes the findings and describes how they are similar to what he has observed in his study of whales. He outlined the novel challenge for the chimpanzees in the most recent research. Well, the idea was that they could use different methods to get the juice, but the most complex method was to unscrew the end of a straw, which was particularly long, and they could get more juice as the juice got lower. And the experimenters wanted to find out if they could figure this out themselves or if they had to have a super genius chimp among them or if they could just watch previously trained chimps. So the idea is to determine if culture in chimps is passed on, in other words, knowledge that you can build on. But now wait a minute, you say unscrew the end of a straw. Very few of the straws I've used have ever had screw threads on the end. What you mean is to sort of unwrap a straw like you'd find in a restaurant? No, it actually had a bit of a mechanism on the end that they had to figure out how to unscrew a certain way. And some individuals that were trained to do it were placed within the chimps that hadn't been trained and could teach them how to do this technique, whereas chimps without a trained, previously trained individual uh, rarely figured it out at all. Okay, so you have a bunch of chimps, and some or one among them knows how to do this, and the other chimps, what do they, watch this chimp? I mean, how do they apprehend what's going on? Well, they had a control group that didn't have any chimps that had previously known this, and they didn't figure it out. And then they had a video and that wasn't very successful. It was somewhat successful. You mean to, in a training video? Kind yeah, of exactly. And then they had an individual that knew how to do it and could pass this information on to other chimps. And it was done robustly enough so that this idea of non-human cultural transmission, it's a beginning of the validation of that. So these chimps, they obviously didn't learn much from television. Maybe in that sense, they're not so different from other uh, similar creatures. But yeah. but they were able to learn by example. Yes. And, you know, the other chimps learned. Now, did they were they capable of passing that on to a new generation of chimps? Could they teach, you know, young yes. chimps how to do this? Yeah, we know uh, the example from Washoe, the first uh, chimpanzee, the first non-human to learn American Sign Language. And one of the first things Washoe did is her son, Lulus, uh, she taught him how to sign. And they saw Washoe going over and grabbing a chair and then forming Lulus's little hand into the symbol for chair. And we also see this in a lot of animals like humpback whales. They train a group, basically, to bubble net. And it's because herring are faster than the humpbacks that they have to make a net of bubbles. And I've seen bubble nets very successfully executed, but I've also seen them fail. And when they fail, the humpbacks get to the surface and a whole bunch of chatter breaks out. And then two large humpbacks fill their mouths with water and pushed a third one away. So apparently he was the guy that messed up. And he didn't get a second chance to join the bubble netters union at all. So he had to go eat krill until he can learn how to bubble net. But it's clear that they all have to learn together and synchronize this activity. Even more than the chimpanzees we've been talking about, the humpbacks have to synchronize activity. So it all has to work at the same time. So it's another example of complexity in learning. 
but also uh, the advantages of being in a social group, right? Because exactly. if you just had a single, I don't know, chimp or a single whale, maybe you wouldn't come up with the solution ever. Whereas if exactly. you're in a group of them, if one in 10 comes up with a solution, then all of them get it, right? Exactly, and can be built on. You mentioned the fact that you had watched whales, because you, you've done quite a bit of uh, watching of whales, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of act as a social group in an activity, bubble netting. Yeah. Now, is that something that they have to learn from other whales, or are they born with DNA instructions how to bubble net? Well, that's what's interesting about this observation, that one was drummed out of the bubble netting activity because he messed up. And... Uh, I don't know what genius humpback whale first started to organize a bubble netter, you know, activity, but in northwest Alaska is where most of the bubble netters are, and they are a group of maybe two dozen whales that work together to do this activity. So obviously, unless they're all geniuses, (laughs) some knowledge was passed on. You know, and I've seen individual humpback whales start to make one little net and scare fish. And they're younger humpback whales, but they're figuring it out. I think they're training to be real bubble netters when they get bigger. So I think there's uh, there's definitely passing on of knowledge. Very intelligent critters. But the idea that the whales can figure out something that's entirely new and then pass it on, you would think that that would be a cumulative effect, and we should be able to go out into the ocean and find whales doing all sorts of very, very sophisticated things uh, on the basis of what, I don't know, their ancestors a thousand years ago discovered. Yeah. But, but do we? Well, the humans opted for tool use, and I think we were forced into it by like an ice age because we were forced to deal with fire and with tools for hunting to make furs and all. And I, I know the dinosaurs, at least in the Cretaceous, it was pretty balmy. It was very pleasant. So they weren't forced into tool use even though they had opposable thumbs and two fingers velociraptors did and were bipedal and large brains and all that, much larger than the existing mammals. So, you know, it's like what spurs an animal on to develop tools? And the bubble netting currently going on in southeast Alaska is quite sophisticated. It took a lot of synchronization and coordination, but once they start bubble netting, it's extremely efficient and effective, even though herring are faster than humpback whales. Well, okay, but then what was new in this result from the St. Andrews researchers about the chimps doing this kind of thing where they teach one another how to do something? It sounds like that was a known phenomenon. Well, uh, learning in animals is a known phenomenon. I don't know anybody studying animal behavior that said, gosh, the critter is dumber than I thought before I started the study. That never happens. They're always smarter. But what the St. Andrews group did is they isolated the components so that there's nobody teaching, then there's video teaching, and then there's an individual teaching. And so I would say it kind of proves that chimps are most effective when they have a tutor as opposed to just viewing something. Okay, so cultural development, which we thought was only something humans did, turns out to be something that we can find in the wild, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds to me, I mean, stepping back for a moment, that this is just nature capitalizing on a kind of a cheap way to build a successful critter, if you will, rather than having to program every eventuality into the DNA, you know, hardwire them 
for the future, uh, you never know what the future is going to bring, but give them this ability to mm-hmm. learn things. In some sense, that doesn't strike me as terribly surprising. Well, you know, humans for such a long time in our history have assumed, I, I won't put it that way, some cultures, Western science culture, has until fairly recently assumed that animals were dumb. And, you know, they have this native intelligence, but as far as animals passing on knowledge as a culture, animal behaviorists have been using the word culture for a long time, for decades. You know, birds can take bread, and instead of eating it, they throw it on the water and wait for a fish to grab it, and then they grab the fish. They're fishing. They've figured this out, this two-step process. Ravens have been shown to, uh, there's a, a little stick and there's a moderately sized stick. So they take the little stick and they get the moderately sized stick out of a cage, a little wooden cage. And then they use a moderately sized stick to get a big stick out of the bigger cage. And then the biggest cage, they get the meat out. So there's this three-step process. So every test that animals have been put under so far have shown surprising intelligence. And we're just, we've been clueless up till now. We're just beginning to understand how really intelligent animals are. And, of course, harking back to humpbacks, they navigate from the group we study from Alaska, where they're doing feeding and social calls, to Hawaii, where they do singing and mating. And uh, that's thousands of miles of navigation. And I'm not convinced they're looking at stars. So they're figuring something out. That's not an easy task either, and they all learn to do it. Lawrence Doyle. Thank you so very much for uh, speaking with us. Thanks, Seth. Lawrence Doyle is a scientist at the SETI Institute. Well, a couple of things struck me here. To begin with, the chimps were in this very carefully controlled experiment, and they learned from other chimps. They didn't learn from TV. They didn't learn from, you know, they, they couldn't figure it out on their own, but they could learn from other chimps. So that suggests that having teachers in front of kids is actually a good idea. And also the idea that the whole group can benefit if you follow the example by one or two individuals, that you assume that they have some wisdom, they have something to teach you, you can adopt that, and then it has this um, adaptive benefit. And also the fact that with this cumulative knowledge that they can generate, you kind of wonder, after 20 million years, why have the chimps not gone a lot farther? And, uh, you know, Doyle suggests that, well, we, unlike them, we were forced into tool use. That was interesting. Well, cumulative culture creates complex societies. Try saying that five times fast. And it seems that a group of chimpanzees is smarter than any one individual and that these animals are able to pass on acquired knowledge. So groupthink has evolutionary benefit. But what if your reliance on what others know is based on what you think they know and not what they really know, you know? That's next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science, skeptic check, rational lampoon. Facts still have currency, for now. And in science, they always will. So here's one. 25% of Americans don't know that the Earth revolves around the sun, according to a 2014 National Science Foundation survey. In other words, a quarter of the population think that the sun goes around the Earth. 
And before you scoff at ignorant Americans, allow me to point out the fact that they fared better than the Europeans on the Sun-Earth question. Now, you might be thinking, here's where these guys predictably analyze why it is that one in four people don't know this fundamental scientific fact, right? Well, not exactly. We're interested in the other three quarters of that pie chart, the 75% that think that the Earth goes around the sun. Why do they believe they know that? After all, very few have made direct observations charting the motion of the sun and the planets. Raise your hand if you've ever graphed out the sun's path through the ecliptic. Yet the majority of Americans believe that the Earth goes around the sun. They know that because everyone around them knows that. Relying on others to keep us informed is a great time saver. Not everyone can do the observation and the geometry of astronomical calculation, for example. And thanks to others, we know that plants photosynthesize, platypuses lay eggs, and plutonium is a poor choice of hand sanitizer. However, the following may be bummer news for all you self-appointed trailblazers. So the theme of our book is that all of thought involves other people to some extent. More than that, the very idea of individual thinking is a myth, writes Brown University cognitive scientist Steve Sloman in The Knowledge Illusion. We are not unique thinkers. We rely on the knowledge of the group. As Blanche Dubois might have said in a parallel universe play, I have always depended on the knowledge of strangers. But there's more. This fact about us is not always adaptive because it turns out that we know far less than we think we know. And sometimes relying on what we think we know because we think others know can lead to less than adaptive behavior, even irrational behavior, especially if herd mentality is based solely on what you've heard. For example, Dr. Sloman describes a study in which people weighed in on the topic of whether food products should have labels. Well, this is a hot topic after all because there are a lot of chemical names and science acronyms out there and people reasonably want to know what they're eating. So this uh, very clever study was done a few years ago in which a survey uh, question asked people whether they thought that all foods that were genetically modified, GMO foods, should be labeled as such. And 80% of people thought that they should. And this is a perfectly reasonable attitude, right? People should be aware of what they eat. They also asked the question whether food that has DNA should be labeled as having DNA. And again, 80% of people thought that it should. And, you know, if you think about it, it's rather difficult to think about any food that does not contain DNA. The only one I can think of actually is Twinkies, and I'm not even sure about that. So if people think that all food containing DNA should be labeled as such, it raises questions about the meaningfulness of labeling foods as having genetically modified materials. Let, let me press you a little bit on that, because, you know, saying that something has DNA... That awakens me, if I'm not, you know, well acquainted with, with what DNA is and where it appears, you know, DNA, a three-letter acronym, that sounds like an attempt by somebody, whether it's, I don't know, Big Agra or the government or somebody nefarious and malevolent to hide some contaminant from me. I mean, isn't that kind of a biased example? Or, But that's kind of the point, right? So I think you're absolutely right that most people don't know what DNA is and don't really understand the meaning of a request to label foods with it. But we don't understand most things. We certainly don't understand what genetically modified foods are, right? So 
those kinds of beliefs, just like so many of our beliefs, really rest on the expertise of members of our community. Right? We can't know everything ourselves. The world is far too complicated for that. And so we depend on knowledge that exists in our community. And, and hopefully we're depending on the right holders of that knowledge, namely the true experts. But it's a very general thing, right? Every time we cross the street, we have to rely on the knowledge of the drivers of the cars that, that could be hitting us. We have to assume they won't speed up, for instance. Uh, so this dependence on other people is a constant. Now, that's the kind of knowledge that, uh, you know, it's not, if you will, book learning, that kind of thing. But uh, there is an effect that I come across fairly frequently that uh, skeptics reference about claims that are not very well known, for example, or well proven. For example, that some UFOs are alien craft. And a lot of people believe this because they've heard testimony from pilots, astronauts, others. This is called argument from authority. And, yeah. uh, you know, argument from authority might be wrong. I think in the case of the UFOs, it's wrong. But, uh, you know, argument from authority is what I'm getting at uh, in my undergraduate classes. Absolutely. And so in, in that sense, there's no difference between people telling stories, trying to deceive you, and a professor giving you information. The difference has to do with where that information comes from and the degree of credibility of the source. Look, it's not easy to negotiate life, right? It's not easy to decide what's true and what's false. We have to make guesses all the time. We have to rely on the credibility of sources, and we have to evaluate that credibility. That's what institutions are for, right? Presumably, if someone has a Harvard degree, that should make them more credible. And if somebody's only claim to fame is that a bunch of other people are tweeting out whatever it is that they say, then that doesn't provide the same kind of ground truth. You write that we feel we understand things better than we do. What is it about people that causes them to think that they understand things better, better than they actually do? So it's exactly what we're talking about. People suffer from the knowledge illusion. They think they understand things better than they do because they confuse the knowledge that's inside their heads with the knowledge that's outside of them, the knowledge, for instance, that's in other people's heads. Right? We live in a community of knowledge. Everything we do depends on knowledge that is both inside our head as well as out in the world and in other people's heads. And we can't always identify the source of that knowledge. So we get confused and we think we know things that are actually sitting in other people's heads. Okay, right. so we can fail to distinguish between what we know and what others know. We can forget what the source is. Uh, can you give an example about you know how we think we know something and actually don't? For example, you talk about how zippers work. Right. So this was a really clever experiment by a great psychologist at Yale named Frank Kyle and his students. And what they did was they took simple everyday objects like zippers and toilets and ballpoint pens, and they asked people to rate their understanding of these things on a seven-point scale. So people might have said, you know, four or five. I understand how a zipper works. I'm not the world's expert, but I understand pretty well. And then Frank would say, okay, how does it work? Explain it. Explain it in as much detail as you can. Right. And what he found was that, for the most part, people had no idea. They just couldn't explain how a zipper or a toilet or you know most everyday objects worked. 
And so when he then asked them again to rate their understanding, their judgments went down. It's like people themselves admitted that they had been living in an illusion of understanding, that their understanding wasn't all that it seemed to be. You, you're right. It was all very well and good to depend on each other's knowledge when we were on the African savanna 100,000 years ago, needed to survive as a group, but maybe not so advantageous in the complicated world we live in today. Uh, can, can you expand on that a bit? Yeah. So look, most of the time it's fine, right? It's not important to understand how toilets work because there are plumbers. And as long as you're not too cheap to call the plumber, then we can rely on their knowledge. I rely on other people's knowledge all the time, and it's just fine, right? In fact, for everything I do, I rely on other people's knowledge. But in the modern day and age, problems do develop. They develop at the micro level, so teams could be more effective if the individual members were a little more humble and appreciated the contributions of the people around them. And at a more global level, I think what's happening on the political scene today is that people have this deep sense that they know what's right, they know what the, how the economy should be run, and they know whether or not the U.S. should get involved in the war in the Middle East despite the fact that they actually know very, very little about these incredibly complicated situations. What happens, I think, is that every individual thinks they understand. Why? Because the people around them think they understand, right? So if I think I understand because you think you understand and you think you understand because I think I understand, then we could all have this great sense of confidence in our own understanding without there being anything fundamental to it. It could just be a house of cards. Can you give an example in history where this kind of contagious understanding has gotten us into trouble? Well, <laughs> I think it's going on in Washington all the time. But, you know, if you look at any war, think about World War One, right? All the countries of Europe thought that it would be a short war and that they would win easily. And it turned out that nobody understood what was going on in the military situation. Nobody understood the impact that new technologies would have on war. And it turned out to be a horrible, drawn-out affair in which millions of people died needlessly, really. I would like to say that the claim isn't just based on my own speculation. We have run experiments in the lab demonstrating a kind of contagious understanding. So the kind of thing we do is we'll tell people that scientists have uncovered a new phenomenon and we'll make up the phenomenon. So it's not something subjects could ever have heard of because we just made it up. So something like a system of helium rain Right? We'll say, scientists have discovered a system of helium rain. They haven't explained how it works, but they know it exists, and they're hoping that they will understand it more fully. How well do you understand it? <laughs> and under those conditions, most people say, I, I don't understand it at all. Right? There's no reason they should. Another group, same story, scientists have discovered the system of helium rain. They've explained it. They understand it. How well do you understand it? And now people say they understand it a little bit. Right? They don't say, oh, now I fully understand it. But the fact that the researchers, that the scientists understand it, even though we haven't told them anything about how it actually works, we haven't provided an explanation, now people have a small sense of understanding. 
So imagine everybody around you is saying, you know, they understand, you know, anything at all. You're going to have a sense of understanding simply because everyone around you has that sense of understanding. You definitely want to keep up with a group. Steve, does it concern you uh, the fact that we have the technology now that allows people to pick and choose which groups they pay attention to or hear from? I mean, they can choose their own not just music, but their own news channel, their own, you know, Facebook friends and so forth and so on. So they're, they're getting the kind of feedback they would want to get rather than a range of opinions. So does this uh, lead to, you know, large segments of the population getting into trouble? I mean, is this a bad thing? I think it leads to everybody in the population getting into trouble. We live in our own little bubbles. It used to be the case that we had Walter Cronkite who would, you know, give America the same set of information. So at least we were talking about the same thing. You know, I don't know if everything he said was true, but at least there was a a commonality to what we believed. But now, when I think about what people who live on the other side of the political divide, how they think about how the world works, I actually have no idea. You know, I'm sophisticated enough to know that the news they get is completely different than the news I get. And it's interpreted in a way that's completely different than the interpretations that, you know, the people I listen to offer me. And so I'm living in a bubble and they're living in a bubble and never the twain shall meet. It's actually kind of terrifying. What's also distressing is uh, that for those who say, well, what people need are more facts, It seems to turn out that people don't like facts, and bombarding them with facts doesn't work. In other words, it sounds like education doesn't work. Why not? Is this even true? Well, remember, education is rarely about facts. You're a physicist, right? You know this. Education is more about theories and frameworks, how it is we should see the world. Facts are a different kind of beast, especially facts that relate to things you care about, like your political or religious beliefs. There is this effect sometimes called the backfire effect, right, where you give people facts that are inconsistent with what they already believe, and it actually makes them believe what they believed before even more strongly. And, And I think the reason for this is because when you are defending your position, you're actually not just defending your own position, you're defending your community's position, right? You're a member of a team, you're waving the flag of your team. And, and so you can't give up, even in the face of facts, because you'd be letting your team down. Well, finally, Steve, you've kind of uh, exposed us to the, to the fact, if I can use that word, uh, to the fact that, you know, the way we think we know things isn't necessarily always correct or logical. But is there a problem here that needs to be fixed? And if so, how do we fix it? Oh, I wish I had that silver bullet. I mean, that is the biggest question that is facing our society today. And all I can say is we have to do what we can to reach across the political divide. But notice something about the first experiment I described to you. What we found was that by asking people to explain how something worked, you reduce their sense of mastery of that thing. Me and my colleagues have demonstrated this in the political domain too, right? You ask people how a policy, how healthcare actually works. What, what are the 
causal principles by which this policy is going to lead to changes in America. And when you do that, people become more humble. And not only that, but they become less polarized. They become less confident in their position. So if we can change the conversation from one about values, what I like and what I think is right, to one about consequences, how things actually work, then I think we can find common ground more easily and we can have a conversation from a perspective of recognizing our ignorance to a greater degree. Steve Sloman, thanks so very much for speaking to us. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thank you. Steve Sloman is a professor of cognitive linguistics and psychological sciences at Brown University, and he is the editor-in-chief of the journal Cognition. do we think as groups, we quickly divide the world into groups, us and them. Find out the ancient biological reasons behind the best and the worst of human behavior. Are you with me or against me, Seth? Let me uh, cogitate on that a bit, or at least consult my group over here. That's all next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check, Rational Lampoon. together now. We have a proclivity to thinking as a group, and we've heard how that can lead us into less than rational behavior, although I for one do prefer my tomatoes deoxyribonucleic acid free, and I support that campaign. But our groupthink mentality is further entrenched by our natural impulse to divide the world into groups, specifically us versus them. We've talked in a previous program with Stanford University neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky about the biological roots of the emotions that drive us. He tells us now that those same drivers prompt us to instantly label a newcomer as a member of our group or as an outsider. In other words, against us or with us. But while that ancient drive to divide can encourage our most unpleasant behaviors, rejecting it can lead to our most altruistic. Dr. Sapolsky's most recent book is Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Robert, you write about the instinct to divide the world into us and them, and that we do it within milliseconds of meeting someone. Can you describe the process? It's so damn depressing until you look more closely. So depressing in that we are wired up to make us-them distinctions over race, over gender, over age, over status symbols, over every such thing. 
we make them within milliseconds. Emotive parts of the brain are responding to that in ways that are often pretty unpalatable before we're even consciously processing subliminal responsiveness. All of that and over and over and over the theme of and thems we're not very nice to, and it's incredibly automatic. There's even like oxytocin as a hormone makes you nicer to people you consider an us and crummier to people you consider a them in implicit unconscious ways. So, whoa, we've got this inevitability of dividing the world into us's and thems, and this is such a primate thing, which it absolutely is. And oh, some of those us's and them's are some of the most inflammatory, alarming things out there. Is it inevitable that someone of another race, the other gender of another social, is always going to feel not quite like you? Um, neurobiologically, it sure looks that way with the automaticity and the speed until you look closer. And it turns out it is virtually inevitable, I feel by now, that we tend towards very rapid, very automatic us-them dichotomies and don't like the thems a whole lot. But it is incredibly easy to manipulate us as to who counts as a them. And, in, and inflame those responses and then bring out some of the worst of human behavior. Or bring out some of the best. And like... Oh my God, the racial divide and us theming and neuroimaging studies showing the speed and, and automaticity with, with, with which that happens until you see there's all sorts of people who are exceptions to that. For example, people who were brought up in racially diverse neighborhoods or people who have been primed to look at this picture of this person, this person's face, and think about something about them as an individual. Is this somebody who likes broccoli or not? And those automatic us-thems disappear in an instant because you're processing them as an individual rather than as part of a category or shift them to a different category. Oh, my God, the racial divide, it is so implicit in us and so hardwired. And instead, now the pictures of these individuals have either they're wearing the baseball cap of the team you were fanatically devoted to or the team that is like the devil's spawn, the rivals, and you completely recategorize along those lines. Within an instant, us are Giants fans and them are whoever the Giants rivals are. And hardwired inevitabilities, that's ridiculous. We shift them so rapidly because we carry multiple hierarchies in our heads and multiple us-them categorizations. And it's really easy for better some of the time and very often for worse to be manipulated into bringing one of those dichotomies into the forefront that trumps all the others temporarily. I want to come back to that but I don't want to forget my other thought, which is the question of whether or not you believe we are hardwired, and I think you're saying we're not, because that is a term that gets thrown around a lot, at least it used to, um, the idea that we were hardwired. But maybe you can give a quick response, and then I don't have to come back to it. Yes yeah. or no? <laughs> um, hardwired instinct, those are words that are totally passe among sort of, I think, hard-nosed scientists okay. to behavior because... I should say you are wrinkling your nose just at the question. Yes, yes, with... with <laughs> disdain because those are undefined and sort of they they one size fits all kind of thing. Okay, that's great. So there is there is room for change and, and we can adapt and all of that. Coming back to the question of us and them, if we were constantly doing this, figuring out new groups of them, there must be an evolutionary reason for it that um, at a certain point a group gets big enough where you need to divide it into us and them so you know who's with us and who's against us. And maybe there's just a natural competitiveness that 
enters into a population once it reaches a certain size? Sure, but again, it's so a, be a reason sliding for it. it's a sliding scale. There's this Bedouin quote that I love, which is it's my brothers, my cousins and I against the world, and it's my brothers and I against my cousins. As in who's an us and who's a them is situationally dependent and can slide and even in hunter-gatherer worlds, I mean, the vast percentage of your cooperation and like Kalahari Desert hunter-gatherers will be within your band. But I don't know, once a week or so, you have a collaborative interaction with the band next to yours. And once a season, you have one with two bands over and once in a lifetime. And who's of us and who's of them is something that... It's a sliding scale because if you're solving the problem of how are we going to divide up this like leg from this carcass that we just hunted, that's a within-band issue. What are we going to do with outside colonials are coming in and forcing us off our lands? That's almost certainly an issue that is pertinent to a whole bunch of bands spread across an area. And the frequency of those vary accordingly. Well, we can imagine, we don't have to imagine, it's it's right before us every day how those divisions are indeed inflamed and, and lead to some bad behavior. But it is also, as you suggest, in crossing that divide, which results in demonstrations of the best of human nature. So when you're helping someone who is from the other camp, and often this happens in times of tragedy or stress, and you're doing it because that's what one does, and maybe that is the definition of the best of human nature. Yep. And again, the malleability of it. Two, two features of that come to mind. One is nobody uses uber-rational cognition to reach a point of a vastly unexpected altruistic act. You know, the, oh my God, the the crowd in a panic running around like headless chickens because the child has fallen into the frozen river and one person comes out from the crowd, leaps in there, risks their life and saves the child. And it's always the exact same thing afterward when they're interviewed. So what were you think? Were you thinking about reciprocal altruism, the evolution of like cooperation like and weighing models the pros of and cons. prisoners? Del- and the yeah. answer is always the same, which is I didn't think before I knew it, I had jumped in. People who do stuff like that, if you start rationalizing as to why that's a good thing to do at that point, almost certainly you'll reach the idea instead that, ah, somebody else will do it, not my problem. It's instead an automaticity. So some of those best moments don't involve a frontal cortex that really works hard to make us do the right thing when it's the harder thing to do. It's automatic. It's not a harder thing. It's the automatic thing. It's the simple thing. It's you're distracted from the temptations of it. It's easier. The other thing that comes to mind is, again, how readily these moments of great empathy and connection with someone who's an utter them in the least likely circumstances, it happens over and over. And the, the version that I've obsessed over for years and have just read endlessly about because I couldn't find a subject that like makes one happier and more optimistic, just as a historical sort of event, is the World War I Christmas truce. The Germans and the British, I believe. Yeah. 
December 1914, first Christmas of World War One, powers that be negotiated with the help of a pope and a few other like top-down authorities that there would be a brief truce the afternoon before Christmas Eve to retrieve bodies from no man's land between the trenches. So it was declared the guns went silent. Everybody goes out to retrieve bodies. And soon soldiers from the opposite sides were helping people carry the bodies. And soon they were helping them to dig the graves in the frozen ground and then praying together and then having Christmas dinner together and then exchanging gifts. And by the next day, playing soccer together. The next day, exchanging addresses because they were going to get together after this damn stupid war is over with. The next day, giving each other advice on their gunner's strategies and how to be safer when that's happening. And those truces went on for days until the officers showed up and had to threaten to shoot these people to get them to go back to trying to kill each other and ordered things like hand-to-hand combat of going over the top of the trenches with bayonets because that would completely dissolve that sense of camaraderie if the guy you were having dinner with yesterday is now trying to spear you, where those were done intentionally. Troops were shifted up and down the trenches left and right to break up the affiliative familiarity with the people on the other line. And All it took were hours for these soldiers to shift us and them where us became all of us in these trenches on both sides who are dying for no damn reason and thems being these faceless powers behind the lines who are using us as pawns. And like if it could happen in that circumstance, the most inauspicious, this is somebody trying to kill you. The most inauspicious, they speak a different language from you. All of yet... That happens. And in some ways, even more amazingly, something that's been documented is not only did the first Christmas truce occur, which was a top-down event that simply spun out of control, as in it went longer than any of the tops anticipated, but over and over throughout the First World War in the trenches, soldiers spontaneously figured out ways to work out truces with each other from across the lines in ways that are straight out of the game theory papers on the evolution of cooperation. And these are the people with the least incentive on earth to be able to do that in terms of hatreds that seemed rational and ingrained and lifelong and Yet, within hours, they were able to do that. It's hopeful, isn't it? It really is. And I wonder, as a scientist, you probably often hear the question, and maybe you don't even bother to answer it, but are humans, are they good deep down, or are they bad? But with the story that you just told, I know it's an anecdotal story, it suggests that our deepest instincts may be good. I think our deepest instinct is malleability and potentiality for going any which way, which I think maybe another way of phrasing that is there is no species that has evolved to be more free from its genes behaviorally. Robert Sapolsky, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Good. Thanks for having me here. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University and the author of Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Well, he ends on an optimistic note there that there are ways of overcoming our tribal mentality, extending 
our compassion to the other side and bringing out the best of human nature. Yeah, but in the show, we've heard about groups and how groups tend to accumulate knowledge. We saw those interesting experiments with the chimps and also heard about the whales and so forth, that they can learn things and they can accumulate that knowledge. Uh, Obviously a very good thing for the survival of the species, but also it means that we tend to offload knowledge. In other words, it's the knowledge in our heads and the knowledge that's not in our heads, and we treat them kind of equally. That's why people can't explain, or a lot of people can't explain, how a zipper works. Can you explain how a zipper works? I can, actually. How, how does it work? Well, it has these little claws, and when you pull it up, it has a little guide that separates the claws so that they can interlock. They're little teeth that it interlocks. I think that's the way it works. That's pretty good. Yeah, well. Oh, can you explain what helium rain is? That's something that Dr. Sloman brought up, yeah. this idea of helium, helium rain. rain. All I can say is any place with helium rain, it's going to be really cold. It's got cold yeah. rain. Because helium is liquid at temperatures that are, what, you know, like four degrees absolute. So uh, any, any place where it's raining helium, my recommendation is move to another place. Okay, but coming back to this idea of how groups think, he points out the danger of jumping on board with what everyone else thinks, assuming that they know something, because they may not know any more than you do. Yes, indeed. And in general, that doesn't get you into too much trouble. But he points out that it can get you into a lot of trouble, because societies can make decisions, You know, particularly when it comes to things like foreign policy, war, and all that sort of thing, where everybody thinks that it's well-established that whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's because the people next to you believe the same thing you do, and so you figure it must be right because you trust that group knowledge, and that can get you into big trouble. So that's why you need to be skeptical, not only of what the other guy thinks, but of your own certainty about a certain subject. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a big point in this show, that you think you know what you know, but you should be skeptical about that, <laughs> because how many times has it turned out that what you thought was true was actually not true? Thanks to the individuals who work as a united group to help us make a new show from scratch each week. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including efforts to develop technologies for the future exploration of Mars. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check. This episode, Rational Lampoon. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Big Picture Science, well, that probably wasn't your idea, and that's okay. You and everyone else can find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because your bridge club told you it was a better way, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen to our show via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.